another Monday, listeners. You'll be nursing your academic hangovers from the AAR conference, I imagine. My name is Christopher Cotter, and I'm joined by... David Robertson. And this week, we're bringing you the fourth and final podcast in our series on NGOs, which has been produced by Michael Freener. And this episode is entitled Christian Evangelical Organizations in Global Anti-Trafficking Networks. And that is an interview with Elena Shi, And it's, again, by Catherine Shear and Giuseppe Bellotta. And once again, supported generously by the Henry Luce Foundation. So thanks to all of the interviewers, to the editor, and to all the participants in this series. We're really excited to bring this final episode to you. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. We are Giuseppe Bolotta and Catherine Chiu. And this is the fourth installment in our series on religion and NGOs. Since the turn of the 21st century, there has been a remarkable surge of interest among both policymakers and academics into the effects that religion has on international aid and development. Within this broad field, the work of religious NGOs, or faith-based organizations, has garnered considerable attention. This series of podcasts for the Religious Studies Project seeks to explore how the discourses, practices, and institutional forms of both religious actors and purportedly secular NGOs intersect, and how these engagements result in changes in our understanding of both religion and development. Since the turn of the 21st century, North American Christian NGOs have become increasingly visible actors in the humanitarian sector. One particularly prominent area of attention and interventions for such organizations has been in the global movement against human trafficking. In this interview, we talk with Elena Shi about her multi-sided research on U.S. evangelical NGOs' involvement in the global anti-trafficking movement, and specifically on their projects in Thailand and China. She will explain how her findings contribute to our understanding of the role of U.S.-based Christian actors in the specific field of rights advocacy and development. Before introducing our guest for today's interview, we would like to thank the Henry Luce Foundation for supporting our research on this topic and the production of this series. So speaking with us today is Dr. Elena Shi, Assistant Professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University also faculty fellow at the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. Dr. Shi is a sociologist specializing in gender and sexuality, transnational race and ethnicity, social movements and labor in the Global South. Giuseppe, would you like to go ahead with the first question? For sure. Thank you very much, Elena, for being here with us. In your book, Trafficking Freedom, you shed light on the role played by Protestant NGOs in the global anti-trafficking movement. Drawing up on long-term fieldwork in the US, where the NGOs are headquartered, as well as in China and Thailand, where they have projects. What led you to specifically focus on these Christian organizations, and how do you position yourself as a researcher in relation to both these organizations and those they work with in their projects? Thanks so much for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. and for the wonderful introduction and really provocative first question. I actually didn't begin this project hoping to understand the role of Christian organizations. And I think that understanding the genesis of the methods that led to this project maybe sheds light on some of its ultimate findings. So I began this project in 2007, having just begun graduate school in sociology at UCLA 
Um, and having also just returned from three years of living in China, first working with a women's legal aid organization in Beijing, and subsequently working with ethnic minority youth on the China-Burma border. And at that time, I was very concerned with how the growing American interest and investment in trafficking globally didn't really resonate on the ground in China. And so when I returned back to the United States for graduate school, I wanted to understand some of the gaps between the global and the local in manifesting things like the 2000 United Nations Palermo Protocol and 2000 United States Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So I began by attending a series of anti-trafficking conferences, anti-trafficking fairs that were increasingly prevalent in Southern California around 2007. And we saw an enormous response by American civil society responding to what the United States had called over and over again a growing scourge of human trafficking. And week after week, I would go to these different fairs and I started to see a pattern of numerous organizations that were working in different parts of the world, but had centered on social enterprise as their way of intervening. And by social enterprise, what I mean is that they were trying to turn to the market and sell goods, often what they termed slave-free goods, as a way of raising funding around human trafficking, but also bringing money and jobs back to, into the very communities that they claimed people were trafficked from. Uh, I happened to get to know two organizations very well, one that was working in Thailand and one that was working in China, both that happened to have offices and activist home bases in Los Angeles. And I began volunteering with them, doing everything from helping them sell jewelry, which is the good that they were selling, to liaising with customers, to processing inventory, and to just generating different kinds of awareness around their cause. And it wasn't until maybe eight months of volunteering with these organizations that I traveled to Asia to see their production sites in Beijing and Bangkok that I began to understand how important Christian faith was for these organizations. What that looked like on the ground is that for sex workers who are recruited to become jewelry makers in this project, across both organizations, Christian worship and our Christian worship or Bible study was a mandatory and calculated part of their wage, as were different kinds of spiritual and moral rehabilitation. So I had workers comment to me that they oftentimes felt like maybe their promotions or salary bonuses were dependent not so much on their labor output making jewelry or how they were doing on the shop floor, but more in terms of their spiritual growth and how much they had grown to, to accept Christianity in their lives. And so I think looking back now in like over a decade that I've been working on that project, it still is fairly striking to me that a lot of times when this jewelry is sold, uh, many consumers, movement activists, don't necessarily know that it's attached to uh, highly missionary goals. And 
for many people, even if that, the fact that it is a Christian organization or is a missionary organization wouldn't often be problematic because it is ultimately serving a development goal in the end, which is that of bringing jobs and economic alternatives right. to sex workers in Asia. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month by going to patreon.com slash projectsrs and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated. It will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Wow, that that is a very long-term engagement and it is fascinating to hear how you have really encountered, bumped into the, the religious aspect uh, of these organizations and how your own experience reflects what the customer sees or doesn't see uh, also in, in, a, in a very interesting way. A question more specifically about these American evangelical organizations, they, they comprise a significant contingent of the global anti-trafficking movement and mobilize considerable financial resources around a moral objection to prostitution, as you point out in your research. Can you tell us a bit more about the ways in which these organizations situate themselves within this global movement of anti-trafficking, for instance, in relation to non-faith-based organizations? And also, how do they influence the movement's lines and how are they influenced by this more global and more general anti-trafficking movement? Yeah, I think that there's a really fascinating and particular uh, American history of the Christian right in particular in the formation of anti-trafficking protocols in the United States. And there are definitely scholars who are far better positioned to talk about that than I, and so I would definitely direct listeners to work by two scholars in particular, um, that of Yvonne Zimmerman, who has a book under the title Other Dreams of Freedom, okay. and then uh, one of my own advisors, Elizabeth Bernstein's work on what she calls the sexual politics of new abolition that documents mm -hmm. a really interesting, strange bedfellows coalition between evangelical Christians and radical feminists, particularly on the issue of trafficking. But in as much as my work is concerned, I think that this is actually is a good opportunity to talk about how the work fits into your wonderful volume on religion and the technopolitics of development, because I've really seen that religious organizations use the secular politics of rights and development alongside evangelical goals of proselytization so that the two are almost mutually interchangeable. And I think that vocational training is has become a really, really popular technical solution mm -hmm. for human trafficking, and particularly around something like prostitution, which is framed as a hugely moral problem, mm -hmm. which is framed as an absolute worst choice For somebody, you know, a woman in the global south who has no other options. 
And so you see everybody from USAID to these grassroots religious organizations trying to think of ways to train people to provide vocational training as a way of offering other alternatives to sex work. The main problem around this is that when you're still training people in menial and manual low-wage labor, it still is not much of an alternative. So jewelry is one such menial, low-wage job, but it's just one of the numerous commodities that's now sold as a part of the anti-trafficking movement. You see everything from bedspreads to silk pajamas being made in India to traditional ethnic handicrafts to silk scarves coming out of Mongolia. And I think these are all part of a concerted attempt among anti-trafficking organizations to what they call leverage the marketplace to raise funds and awareness around the issue of trafficking. And I think one of the reasons why religious organizations have had to turn to social enterprise is, for, for the United States as an example, is that as faith-based organizations, they're often excluded from certain kinds of federal or mm-hmm. government funding when religious proselytization is like a core goal of theirs. And also as religious organizations, they're able to tap into huge bases of churchgoers, parishioners, mm-hmm. who are who see social justice goals as inextricable from like Christian theology. So I think that there's been a real turn on the part of churches to recognize social justice in an increasingly complicated world um, and and a more like shrewd market-based calculated turn to find ways for faith-based organizations to fund themselves when they can't seek Mm -hmm. other sources of funding. So we've been talking about a faith-based organization, evangelical movements and the United States, but it's interesting to see what is happening in the other two field sites you chose, which are Thailand and China. Thailand and China provide two very different legal contexts for the work of Christian NGOs. So, Elena, how do these different juridical and policy frameworks influence influence the ways in which these NGOs implement their project on the ground? And how do local perceptions of the articulation between aid and Christianity take shape in these very different contexts? I think that... One of the greatest empirical paradoxes of this project is still that you could have the exact same American evangelical Christian jewelry projects operating in both Thailand and China, which we understand to be vastly different in terms of their political economic regimes. And so one might classify Thailand uh, officially as a democratic monarchy, whereas China is more understood as like post-socialist authoritarian. The way that this plays out is that concretely on the ground, Thailand offers over 300 missionary visas to foreigners every year. And that means that foreign missionaries constitute one of the largest sources of tourist income, expat populations and that their comings and goings are very rarely monitored, that it's completely legal to be a foreign missionary in Thailand, and it's absolutely prevalent. You know, if you you show up to any of the large cities, 
fair gatherings, public gatherings, churches, Christian churches that foreigners can attend. You contrast that to China, which is notoriously restrictive of religious practice, absolutely would see the presence of American Christians under the threat of imperialism. There are very, very few places for Chinese Christians to practice. They're almost completely relegated to what are called home churches. And as a foreigner, they're like single designated places where Christians who are foreigners can practice in China. And so in terms of just like the religious atmosphere combined with the atmosphere towards foreigners, vastly different in China and Thailand. How this plays out within vocational training organizations for sex workers is that I think in Thailand, sex workers who have chosen to work under or to work as jewelry makers are able to treat that more as any other kind of job that they might choose. So they often, they're not required to live on site. Um, They rent apartments. Bangkok, a lot of them have part-time jobs or or actually other full-time jobs working up to 40 hours a week because the pay cut that they have to take from um, becoming being sex workers to becoming jewelry makers just doesn't provide them a living wage. And by contrast, in China, because the organization has to be more careful about the scrutiny of the local police and, and government censorship, they require all workers to live on site in a mandatory dorm. And there's no way, for instance, that any of those workers would be able to have a part-time job. And workers definitely feel a bit more stifled in, in, in China. And I'd say one, one larger difference in how this affects how workers experience religion that is that in Thailand, I think given that freedom, relative freedom of religion, about 30% of people under rehabilitation have actually converted to Christianity, mm-hmm. whereas in China, where that history of conversion isn't as prevalent, the rates are very, very low. I've only seen one or two people convert in, in the decade that I've studied these organizations. Thank you. Thank you very much for these very insightful and precise answers that can give us a grasp of, of what is going on in those in those countries. Just maybe a last question that is more, more general. Is there is there anything you would like to add as a kind of concluding note about what we have learned about faith-based activism uh, in this field? I think the takeaway that I would love listeners to have is Hopefully not that faith-based organizations in particular are flawed in their approaches, but that it really is anti-trafficking or human trafficking or sex trafficking as a concept that is flawed and misunderstood and needs to be interrogated more clearly. Because ultimately my work argues that by transforming sexual labor into low-wage manual labor, these organizations are able to meld Christian ideas around good morals and salvific evangelism within secular development goals around decent work. But these should not be satisfying because we're living in a world without decent work options. (laughs) And I think the last thing that I'll say about this or, or that I'd further caution is that 
there's a growing trend moving away from um, the Palermo Protocol definitions of human trafficking, shifting to an increasing number of people wanting to use the term modern-day slavery. And I think what modern-day slavery signals um, is a gesture towards pinpointing extreme and absolute cases of human sufferings. Faith-based organizations and secular rights-based organizations both need to expand their purview of work into maybe taking a little bit of morality out of what we understand is good work and listening to migrant workers, sex workers around the world who are telling us the different conditions that they're looking for. And so I think what I was saying was that by looking at and fetishizing these extreme cases of human suffering, the one-off cases in, in brick kilns or in forced sexual slavery, we don't get to understand the hundreds of people who are seeking to have better lives working in those areas where there can be incremental changes for worker health, safety, and better access to labor rights and, and working conditions across the board. This was really inspiring. Thank you very much, Dr. Shi, for joining us at the Religious Studies Project. Thank you so much to both of you and all of your hard work, and I can't hear that, wait to hear the rest of the series. Thank you. Thank you, Elena. Thanks very much for that interesting and important, I think, interview. We should flag out that we've made an archive page of the entire NGO series and the responses to them. Um, so do check that out on our website. And obviously there is the entire RSP back catalogue, which is well over 270 podcasts now. Indeed. And this idea of having an archival page for various series is something we want to do more of when we get uh, the website and the archive in particular, uh, where we want it to be. But more on that once we get to the do end something. Of the <laughs> exactly. Um, we've got an interview coming up next week with a stalwart interviewer called David G. Robertson. Ah, yes. That's a very Scottish name there. Yes. Yes, quite. This was an interview recorded at the first Sensam sort of day conference seminar thing on millennialism. And I spoke to Susan Palmer, who's been on the project before, and this time we were talking about children in new religious movements. Hmm. So it does touch on her previous interview talking about the law, but it's much more about the role of children and the way that children become uh, a focal point of concerns about hmm. new religions as a threat, but also a kind of focal point on the way that new religions spread their message so they become sort of they often are seen as um, almost sort of messianic figures so it's Excellent. Very interesting, yeah. yeah and you know, because in a lot of our work youth children in general don't, don't really come in because of the various uh, sort of ethical and practical issues of of working and interviewing with children um although we should flag up um, one of our interviews from one of our last series um with Naomi Thompson on religion and youth, which ties in nicely with this. But um, I think this will be filling a very um, important gap in our output. So thanks, David, for recording that. 
Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Susan's a really pleasant person to talk to anyway, but really knows the stuff inside out. So it's not exactly a hard interview to record. And um, I'm hoping to speak to her again at some point in the future. I mean, the future? Do we, we, we have like two more podcasts coming up. And then the Christmas special next week. That's what we were just talking about was, was next week. Oh, that's week. next week yeah, we're yeah. talking about already. Yeah. And then one more after that, then the Christmas special. That's the one. And then we, we actually have a good few recorded for next year already, but we'll keep that for the end of the year, I think. Yes, we shall. Thanks to all our patron, Patreon patrons. We really, really appreciate it. You're doing something very important not only for the project and the continuation of the project, keeping it free, but sending a a signal to the rest of the discipline about how we can change things and uh, try out some new ways of doing things ethically. Exactly. And um, at time of recording, that's gone up to 15 patrons. So thanks so much to the five who have joined since we last recorded. But hey, by the time this goes out, maybe significantly more. Let's keep those fingers crossed. Yes. So thank you for subscribing and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals